Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year! Happy New Year for real! It's 2024 for us now. (laughs) Instead of just this future mythic 2024 we were assuming would happen, and it did. It did. We're here. Yeah, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm great. I booked some plane tickets today, so that always makes me happy. Oh, right. Where are you going? I'm going to Rwanda and Uganda right around the time people will be listening to this, actually. And then in March, I am headed to Taipei and Korea. It's very impressive. I don't think I like to travel. I just realized this. That's okay. Yeah, we got back from a trip to Savannah, and Savannah is great. I love being places. Mm. I just don't like going there. And I really love my house. So, I mean, all fair points. I like being places. And for the most part, I like the going there part. It's, I I don't know. I love airplanes. I'm a weirdo. Are you a Sagittarius rising? I think you are. I'm a Leo. Okay. I'd be very curious about Sagittarius placements for you. If you find your birth time, that should be a a thing we talk about. 6.12 p.m. Well, I'll do it in between now and the next (laughs) intro we record. Shall we get to the jazz? We got to get to the jazz. But first, we got to tell people how they can support us. Yes. On this very day. On this day. On this day. You can go to tinyurl.com slash CWHmerch and purchase some cool merch. That is t-shirts and what else is on there? I don't remember. Good stuff. Like pretty much everything. Like you Mm. can get a phone case. You can get a tote bag. A sweatshirt hoodie, a baby onesie, <laughs> if you want that for your child. I should get that for my niece. You should get that for your niece. I should. And take a picture and be like, even babies love conversations with a wounded healer. <laughs> That's Yes. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. And starting this year, or well, we've already dropped the episode by the time you're hearing this, uh, Sarah and I are recording really cool little in-between episodes where we're having chats about things that are relevant and probably sometimes not relevant if you want to get to know us a little bit better. So head on over to Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. Just wait until you see the videos, guys. It's going to be really, really exciting what we're doing. so good. (laughs) Sarah, what did you think of Arij? I loved Arij. (sighs) So... I have a friend, her name is Farah, and she is another badass practice owner who I've known for several years now. And I just attended a training of hers where she talked about, she's Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so she talked about Muslim Americans and there was so much in her training that I learned. And so it was interesting to sort of like have this episode of Arij to listen to after that and hear really more of the same experience Mm. of like having to explain what she isn't instead of what she is. Yeah. And I loved that distinction. And and I think that's when you brought in the part about liberation, like mm. what is liberation, right? And it is 
being able to just be who you are mm-hmm. instead of in a defensive mode of explaining who you aren't. So I loved it. And you don't know this because you haven't listened to every single episode. Derek Dawson, who she shouted out as one of her mentors, was on the podcast. Oh, yes. And Derek, you know, I only had two substantive conversations with Derek Mm -hmm. in my time that I knew him, but he was also a mentor to me too. He was a thought leader. I really credit him with helping me begin to parse out the difference or like the intersections of like racism and and capitalism and patriarchy. He was just so inspiring and his death is such a tragic loss Mm. to movements for liberation. So I just, I love, and I was like, wow, now I need to talk to Arish because I want to know who else we have in common. Is she in Chicago? She was. She only just moved okay. to Los Angeles. So when we recorded this episode, that's when I found out she moved to Los Angeles. So okay, you will have people in common for sure. Totally. Yeah. I'm going to have to talk to her because yeah, I just, everything she said, I loved it. Yeah. It was, it made me think how important it is to have diverse voices who mm-hmm. can speak. Mm-hmm. Not even like you guys didn't talk about really the war that's going on right now, but just to have her presence again, being who she is, not having to explain anything around it, but just talking about her experience right now just felt really important. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to note that I actually reached out to Arige months ago. And the day we were supposed to record was. I think the day after the invasion of Gaza Mm. and for very obvious reasons, we needed to reschedule. And, you know, we spoke about how much do we want to talk about this? How much do we not want to talk about this? So we did make a conscious choice to really not make her the spokesperson. Right. And to let her say who she is and not who she isn't. And in that same vein, Because it was really important to me as someone who's known her for so long and seen all of the incredible work that she's doing to be able to cheerlead that and to not have to like sideline all the amazing things to focus on something that's really terrible and really painful. And, you know, I say this to my clients in therapy all the time. We can't just focus on the pain. We have to focus on the joy. And I think that's what Arish and I chose to do in this episode. So if anyone is wondering, you know, why isn't there any commentary on this? Mm -hmm. It was a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. And that's liberation, right? That's Mm -hmm. being able to exist and have joy despite the fact that there are terrible things in the world. It doesn't mean, and you and I are going to talk about this a little bit more in one of our, you know, one-on-one episodes, but just because you're not saying something on social media doesn't mean you're not doing something. Yeah. Just because you're allowing yourself to experience joy in a hurting world doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you are not a liberation anti-racist person. Yeah. Yes. There are so many, I guess, tasks, right, that need to be done right mm-hmm. now. And one of them is joy. Yes. The end. Yes. Like, you got a joy. One of them is joy. You have. Yeah. You have to joy. And it is an actual joy to present this episode with Arish because you'll hear us talk and you're going to hear her refer to me as Anne Remy, which is my full name, (laughs) but listeners may not know that or hear me referred to as that. But most of my friends in Chicago call me Anne Remy, all as one name. Is it just because your Facebook name was that? Forever? No, my Facebook name became that because everybody called me Anne Remy. (laughs) And the same thing happens to my brother. 
it yeah they just push the first and last name together it it works so but yeah so it is it's still weird when people call me Anne. that's funny because i spent so much of my life not being called that so. <laughs> i love it yeah very strange with that joy let's take that joy and introduce Arij Makati, who is the Managing Director of Culture Change at Pillars Fund, where she designs and leads programming that challenges damaging narratives about Muslims in the U.S. and amplifies Muslim voices in artistic spaces. Her storytelling work seeks to change the lens through which Muslim stories are told to one that is authentic, complex, and honest. So with that, please enjoy this episode with the amazing Arij. Are you a therapist stepping into leadership for the first time? Or maybe you've been in a leadership position for a while but are bumping up against new struggles. It's a transformative journey and one that can be deeply rewarding but also filled with unique challenges. Many therapists find themselves in leadership positions because of their exceptional therapeutic skills, yet leading, supervising, or managing others requires a whole new set of competencies not covered in graduate school. Our Authentic Leadership Group is here to help you become the authentic and wholehearted leader you aspire to be. And we believe this journey is best undertaken with the guidance of experienced mentors alongside fellow learners. Authentic Leaders will run February 2024 through September, meeting once monthly on Fridays for 90 minutes. Join me in this journey of self-discovery and leadership mastery, where you'll enhance your leadership skills and forge meaningful connections with fellow therapists who are committed to their own growth and the betterment of the therapy field. To join me and start registration, go to www.headheartbiztherapy.com authentic leaders dash group. That's headheartbiztherapy.com authentic leaders dash group. Hey, Rees. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy to see your face and talk after such a long time. It has. It's been a long time. It's been many a year. Yes, it has. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yeah. So will you start us out by telling people who you are and what you do and absolutely all the great things? So my name is Edige Mikati. I'm the Managing Director of Culture Change at an organization called Pillars Fund. And our mission at Pillars is really to amplify the leadership, narratives, and talents of Muslims in the United States and a little bit in the UK as well. And what we do at Pillars is sort of twofold. The first part of our work is supporting Muslim-led organizations to kind of address systemic issues rather than just the symptoms that come from them mm. in three funding areas. The first area is building civic power. The second is reimagining public safety. The third area that we fund is mental health and wellness. And a few years ago, in 2019, our president and co-founder, Kashif Sheikh, gave me a call and he said, you know, I'm really proud of the work that we've been doing in the Catalyze Fund, funding all this incredible work that's helping Muslims build power in the United States. And, and I'm realizing that at this point, there is a calling for me that's telling me that this is not sufficient. Okay. It was not a complete strategy. Because see, around this time, Trump had fully committed to making the Muslim ban law. And so rather than be able to dream of a world beyond survival and imagine, innovate, and grow our community's resources and senses of safety, 
so many of the organizations we've worked with had been frozen into this cycle of playing defense and reacting. So instead of thinking about how we could add even more rights, we were forced into this corner of simply trying to hold on to the few we already had that were now being taken away. But no one wakes up one day just deciding that they hate Muslims, yeah. not even Donald Trump. <laughs> even he was socialized, sure. right? Yeah. Even he was socialized into believing that Muslims were the enemy through the films he watched, the news he read, the stories he consumed. And Kashif knew that if we were ever going to get back to playing offense, we had to address the root cause of what was causing this fear and hatred of Muslim people. And so I joined Pillars later that year, as I said, as the founding managing director of Culture Change, where I had one of the most exciting and intimidating things to work with, a blank page. <laughs> uh, one, of my, one of my favorite things, but it's also just like, ah! So we knew that we needed a strategy that would support the amazing grantee partners that I spoke about and catalyze to dream in a world where they were swimming with the current of culture instead of paddling so hard against it. Mm. And out of that blank page, we decided to do four main things in service of changing the persistent lies that were told about Muslims into more mainstream stories told by Muslims that simply share the truth about who we are. We do four main things. The first is that we conduct and disseminate research and recommendations about how Muslims currently show up in media and talk through how we can meaningfully move the needle towards stories that more accurately reflect the truth about our communities. The second is we hold the industry accountable to transforming their institutions into spaces that are more inclusive of Muslim stories and their storytellers. Mm -hmm. Third, we are most known for this. We design and facilitate a fellowship with Oscar winner Riz Ahmed and his production company, Left-Handed Films, that supports 10 emerging Muslim writers and directors each cycle that to meet their greatest creative aspirations. And we do that through an unrestricted grant, cohort community, really high-quality mentorship, and I think very powerful place-based professional development. And then the last thing we do is we gather Muslim audiences and build community through For Us Bias programming. And that can look like iftars during Ramadan, which is the breaking of a fast, or community screenings that show our community in a light that we feel is really authentic and dignified, mm. exclusive panels and attend film festival presentations where we can share a little bit more about our work and kind of identify the problem for people so that folks can understand how to um, ally with our communities. So one of the things that you just said that really landed with me is this idea of moving out of survival mode into thrival mode. And, you know, this idea of being able to control your own narrative, whereas I think, you know, you and I are are pretty close in age, basically have grown up our whole lives with some pretty problematic narratives around the Muslim community, especially both growing up in the United States. And mm -hmm. I wonder how how you've experienced this, this idea of moving from survival to thrival in your own life? You know, it's such a good question. I, I think about this quite a lot because I'm actually working through the shame of how I approach this as a young person. And I think I actually have a lot of guilt around how I used to approach this. And I say that because when 9-11 happened, I was in seventh grade. My mom I think you've met my mom in or me, but I don't know that I have actually. Yeah. She's amazing. Everyone should meet my mom. She's incredible. She's beautiful. She's the best person alive. Your mother is stunning. Yeah, she's hot. <laughs> like she is. She's a baddie. So for those of you <laughs> who cannot see Arij, because you can't, Arij's entire family is very good looking. Oh, that's so kind. It's, I don't know about that. But listen, it's <laughs> your entire family is very good looking and seems very cool. So I'm gonna pause and just say Arij and I know each other from 
a friend that you grew up with who was a roommate of mine in college. Yes. So mm-hmm. we've known each other for quite a few years. And yes, we have. Uh, but I don't think I've met your family. So You know, that's too bad. We have to fix that. I would love I would love to fix that yeah. actually. Yeah. So to share with you, because you don't know my mother, yeah. I guess. So every single day my mom wears hijab and she wears a habaya, mm. which is sort of like a loose black um robe, mm. I guess you could say. And she looks awesome in it. But that also means that she's like extraordinarily identifiable as a Muslim person. Mm-hmm. So I remember for the days after and and years after, but particularly the days after 9-11, my mom would pick me up from school, from middle school every day. And I remember feeling scared and maybe even a little bit embarrassed that I would have to then answer to something that I had nothing to do with. Yeah. And what that evolved into was this place of defining myself by what I was not instead of telling people what Mm. I was. And what I mean by that is, again, I talked about playing Mm -hmm. defense earlier and how we want to get out of that place of playing defense. I played defense for a lot of my youth. A lot of people, you know, would ask me questions like, why does Islam support terrorism? Mm. Which is like not, I don't even agree with the premise of the question because it doesn't, right? But I think having to say to people, I'm Adij, I'm Muslim, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not violent, I'm not oppressed, I'm not, you know, prevented from following my dreams as a woman, I'm not this, I'm not that, was sort of the way that I ended up defining myself for the next, I don't know, probably four or five years. And it was only when I was in my later high school years that I realized that I was doing myself a really great disservice. And I was doing my people a really great disservice and my communities a really great disservice Mm -hmm. because doing that prevented me from telling people all of the great things that I am and that we are. Hell yeah. And there's a lot of really amazing and beautiful things that I want people to know about our community. And just by telling them about what we're not, it really, I think, prevented me from owning my own narrative. Mm. And I'm really proud that I got to that place where I could say, you know, like, did you know Muslims are the most racially and ethnically diverse community in the United States? And perhaps American Muslims are people say that we're the most diverse in the world, which means if you do right by Muslims, you do right by everyone, literally everyone. Can you say that again? No. Can you say that again? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Muslims in the United States are the most ethnically and racially diverse religious community in the United States. And a lot of people believe that it is true that Muslims in the United States are the most ethnically and racially diverse religious community in the world, which means that if you do right by Muslims, you do right by everyone, which is one of the reasons that I focus on this community. What a powerful statement to be able to make. That's why I wanted you to say it again, because it, it like that hit me. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That That's really affecting me to hear. Like, if you can do right by one community, you can effectively do right by all of them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think so, because every single community that I ally and work with mm-hmm. also has members that belong to mine, right? Mm. So whether it's across race, whether it's across gender, whether it's across sexuality, whether it's, you know, across class, whether it's across age, whether it's across ability, all of these things affect my community. 
And I think that for me, I like to see Muslim communities as a place where we can test and theorize and pilot what it truly looks like to be in beloved community together across lines of difference. And that's one of the reasons it's so important to me that people get to know our communities and who we really are. Yeah. So what is the, ooh, what brings you the most joy right now about being a member of the Muslim community? It's such a good question because I think the past month, we're recording this on, I think it's November 15th today. Yep. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. We're recording this on November 15th. So the past like month to six weeks has actually been very hard to find moments yep. of joy. And so I would say for me, what's bringing me the most strength from being mm. in this community and the most hope in being in this community is just the religiously required discipline of hope that is very much interspersed and interjected into our faith tradition. So I think a lot about I think a lot about this hadith, which is like a story that wasn't necessarily, it's not in the Quran, but it's a story that has been passed down as a story from the prophet. So it's like a, an oral chain of narration from hundreds of people at this point mm -hmm. that is preserved to talk about his life and the lessons that he taught. And one of my favorite hadith talks about how the prophet, peace be upon him, says that if you see the last hours upon you and the day of judgment is literally coming, and you're planting a sapling, finish planting the sapling. Mm. And I've always been so moved by that in moments of difficulty. It really gets me up in the morning because there is just sort of this audacious hope and requirement and sense of community that we say, like, even if this is my end, I hope that this tree makes it beyond me and feeds somebody else. Wow. So this idea of like cultural perpetuity mm. and community perpetuity that is so inherent to our tradition brings me a lot of joy and a lot of comfort, especially in moments of challenge and seeing a lot of like pain and suffering and injustice in the world. It reminds me that I'm not the end and this is not the end. I love this. And I'm struck. So I'm struck by a few things from this and something that I think as long as I've known you, I've always been in awe of is it, so I was raised Catholic and I have a very problematic relationship with with the Catholic Church and and mm. I'm no longer religious myself. The new pope seems kind of cool though. <laughs> I mean like comparatively yeah, he there's seems not, cool. it's, it's a low bar but like <laughs> like it's an all organized religion. Well, but but this is I, <laughs> you know so something that I've always been in awe of in my sort of experience of your experience is mm. kind of what you just said, this deep connection you have in your ability to, oh, what is what is it that I want to say? Your ability to find peace and hope and strength in your religion is something that is completely foreign to me. And I'm in awe of it because it's not a jealousy. It's truly something that does not register for me. It's not something I ever really experienced mm. with my religion. And I also heard in that, so you're from Lebanon originally. I am. And the greatest place on earth. The, uh, listen, I'm <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with you. So I know it's great. <laughs> 
it's one of the most beautiful countries I've ever had the privilege to go mm-hmm. to. And I really heard so much of the Lebanese spirit in what you just said as well, which is like, yeah. oh, there's a lot of shit going on, but we're still going to party and we're still going to enjoy our life and we're still going to persevere because that's just who we are. That's absolutely right. I mean, Beirut, they call Beirut the Phoenix City, mm-hmm. which I've always loved because it has been rebirthed from the ashes so many times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, right? Because my people are so resilient and we will literally rebuild until yeah, we yeah. can't. You know what I'm saying? Like we, every generation will rebuild and we'll build it better every single time. That being said, like I sometimes ask myself where we would be if we didn't have to be so resilient. Yeah. It's so unfair, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, what you're saying is so true. I mean, my parents lived through a civil war and the fact that they decided to get married and have me as a child in the midst of a civil war actually awes me. Mm. Like I, I literally at this point, you know, I'm not a mother, I'm not partnered. And I think a lot about how a lot about motherhood really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. And so much of it scares me because I have like climate anxiety and <laughs> sure like stress about, you know, where our children will feel like they belong and the direction that society is going and etc. But I'm really inspired that my parents were like, we are literally people who grew up in a civil war and we still want to start a family. Like that has just really embodied exactly what you said, that spirit in me of putting one foot in front of the other and and trusting that like everybody was born into the time that they're meant to affect. Well, there's also something about it's a bold statement of taking up space, mm. right? This mm-hmm. idea of sort of waiting for the right moment or the the perfect situation in order to have kids or there's something very bold. And I think it also speaks to this, like, we refuse to live in survival mode and, you know, we choose to thrive. So it feels very bold and like a very, like, Incredible act of of rebellion, actually. I appreciate that. I'm actually, you know what this is making me think of is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the history of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with how he came up with this? Not enough to be able to speak to it. So lay it on me. Yeah. So Maslow, you know, he observed the Blackfoot nation's way of life, right? And so the reason that it is a pyramid is actually that they originally had their own hierarchy that was in the shape of a teepee and he sort of reconfigured this and <laughs> colonized it <laughs> like a western way of thinking yeah no absolutely yeah. he colonized it and so it starts with like okay everybody needs food and water and then they need shelter and then etc cetera, etc cetera, all the way to self-actualization what is really interesting and i think this is true of a lot of non-western ways of being and belief and also a lot of indigenous ways of being and belief is their pyramid is only three levels and it starts with self-actualization. That is actually the first level in the pyramid. Wow. I did not know that. Yes. And the, the second level of the pyramid is community actualization. And the third is cultural perpetuity. So it has this expansive concept of time and multiple dimensions of reality versus the Maslow's pyramid that I grew up with here in the US, which really privileges individual rights and one lifetime scope of analysis. So mm. I think that that way of thinking of you start with the self in order to be part of the whole and be part of generations before you and the generations that come after you and a link in the chain 
is a very, very important part of our culture and, and my faith as well. So it's something that I'm really drawn to, sort of that version of the pyramid. <laughs> Shout out to the Blackfoot people. Well, it also speaks to the to exactly what your organization does. That's the hope. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious. Uh, well, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about like the projects that are ongoing, but I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of the things that are getting you excited about what Pillars is doing right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I can talk about a couple of things that have been just tremendously exciting for me. So in our first year, we piloted this fellowship that I shared about earlier, where we selected from over 650 applications, 10 people. God, I wish I had 50 slots because there's such an abundance of talent in our community. Anytime any industry person tells me like, oh, I'd love to have a Muslim person, but there just aren't any. I literally am like, what are you talking (laughs) about? There's such an abundance of talent. And so that's part of the reason that we have both a grass tops approach, which is sort of like changing the institutional way of being, identifying the problem, identifying the solutions, and this grassroots approach, which is like, okay, we'll help you build the bench then of the next great Muslim storytellers that are going to tell the truth about our communities. I'm super proud of all 10 of our first fellows that we had. They're honestly so remarkable. The taste level is so high. And one thing that I'm very proud of is like, we are not interested in like, PSA after school specials about how great Muslims are. Like that's not what we do to be super clear. We're extremely interested in like high art, high taste, good stories that also just happen to tell the truth about us. Mm. So I want to see not necessarily like identity stories. I want to see genre. Like what does a Muslim look like in sci-fi? What does a Muslim Western look like? What does, you know, a Muslim coming of age look like? And we've gotten to see many of our fellows just thrive in that space. So, for example, one of our fellows, Nadja Widatullah, she wrote on this incredible uh, TV show called Mrs. Davis mm-hmm. on Peacock, which actually, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's actually really interesting because no, it's about a nun. You can't get Peacock in the UK. That's too bad. See yeah. if you can rent it somehow because okay. it's about a nun who is sort of like in a battle between her Catholic faith and like an AI entity. And it is so incredible. And it's such a cool perspective on faith and the modern world. And it's also very funny and weird. So we had her write about that. And that that was a huge win. One of our other fellows, I can't say who, but now has like one of his plays that is an amazing coming of age in development at a major studio, which I'm very, very excited about. Cool. Like, I can't even say which one, but just trust that, like, if I said it, you'd be like, that one? Gas. We have folks like Aksa Altaf, who has her unbelievable short being developed into a feature right now. It's called Heat. You're going to love this, Anne Remy. Okay. It's called Heat. And it's about a young woman who is living in the Gulf. And her dad is a, a South Asian person who has come to be one of the sort of like blue collar laborers that work in the Gulf. And a lot of these laborers, a lot of people, I, some people know a little bit more about this now because the World Cup sort of put a spotlight on this. Yeah. But a lot of these laborers don't even have access to their own passports, for example, to leave. Yep. And so this young woman is trying to get her dad's passport back. And it's like this heist film where she ends up inside the place where he works it's like a place where they have these sort of hover motorcycles that are the racing you know vehicles of the future and she gets caught mid heist and she ends up stealing one of the most expensive 
hover motorcycles and it just becomes this like incredible chase movie about her like liberating her dad. These are the types of stories that I'm just so committed to because one, that just sounds like who doesn't love a heist movie? That sounds, it sounds great. And it sounds awesome. And like, do we need more Tom Cruise heist? Like we don't need that anymore. I personally don't. Yeah. I'm good on Tom. Like all due respect. (laughs) I'm good. Yeah. And we actually just announced, I know I announced that we work with Riz Ahmed, who is one of our major partners. He actually just came on board as an executive producer for one of our other fellows, Imran J. Khan's films, Mustache, which recently won the South by Southwest Audience Award. And we're so proud of him. It is such an amazing movie. And it was a very cool story for us because he applied with the script. He made the film while he was in the program. And now that he's an alumni, like we're working on trying to get it sold. And I really hope that the world gets to see it soon because it is so funny, so touching, and such a twist on the coming of age story. It has kind of like a reverse assimilation plot line that is really refreshing. Okay. Where a child gets removed from an Islamic school and so desperately wants to go back that he tries to trick his parents into thinking he's being corrupted by public <laughs> This is so I went to a, an author reading in Brighton where I live uh, last year and it's a bookshop shout out to Afroy bookshop which is black owned and only sells books by people of color love so good and they had the author Nikki May in and she wrote a book called Wahala which is about she says I just wanted a book about Black people that wasn't about trauma, that didn't need to talk about slavery, that didn't need to, like, I just wanted Black people to exist and live normal lives. That's it. And, like, we don't need to explain anything. Like, we can just exist. And I heard some of that in what you just said. Like, we don't need to spend 20 minutes of exposition in a movie explaining the trauma or the history or that we can just exist and that's okay. Because we do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, you know, as we look through our applications, something that I often look for is I have a perspective and the Pillars staff has a perspective that we're very, very disinterested in stories and projects that are like, please let us in. Mm. We don't care about being let in, Mm. actually. What I'm more interested in is check us out. So rather than trying to knock on doors and say like, I know that you sold a lot of stories that start with terror and national security. And here's my story that does that. Just like let me in and then maybe I can do something the next time. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I want to throw a party that's so good that people walk by and they knock on my door and they're like, can I come party with you? Yeah. And that's the type of story that really compels me. So the the type of program we're trying to create with Pillars, and I, I think we've been fairly successful, is what would it mean? If we brought together a bunch of Muslim creatives that were top-notch, just phenomenal, Mm. phenomenal storytellers and told them that they could create outside of the bounds of Islamophobia, Mm. totally disregard it. And what comes out of that is just really powerful, compelling storytelling that has just taken notice. People have taken notice. Well, it speaks to the power of liberation. And I think that that's what a healing thing that must be. For people who have experienced Islamophobia for likely most of their lives. Yeah. And I'm really curious when you think about what you're doing, how you feel about the term healer. 
as applied to that work? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I struggle to think of myself as a healer. Now, that being said, I do think that the work I do heals myself. And I think that the work that I do brings me people that help me understand how we will heal the world. So when I think of the term healer, these are people that I deeply respect, people that I think are so crucial to our society, people who I think are able to hold space radically and across lines of difference, people who really approach things with curiosity over judgment. I think it's hard for me to think of myself as anything, honestly, but I do ho- I do believe that the work I do is first and foremost for me and the little girl in me that like wishes she had an alternative to taken as an example of like how I could choose to define myself, how I could choose to tell my story. And I just want the other little Adijas running around to know that they have that option. And I think that's healing for me. Yeah. And I hear you kind of saying like, I'm not really sure how I feel about applying this label to myself. Yeah. And I think that's fair enough, especially when it sounds like a lot of labels have been applied to you throughout your life. <laughs> Seriously, like, Haven't we all? That's, that's a pretty universal experience. That's true. And I'm curious now if we add into that the idea of, of the wounded healer. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that resonates more for me. The reason I say that is because, as I shared before, any of my work that I've done comes from a place of personal experience. So when I think about what problems exist in my communities, I'm either thinking about the things that I've gone through or the things that the people I love have gone through and figuring out like what would it take for the next generation of us to have new problems. I would love for them to have new problems. I would love for them to look back and be like, wow, I cannot even imagine having to think about XYZ because now I'm thinking about ABC. And I think that's that's something that my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation did for me. Mm. I could not be where I was, where I'm at with these new problems if they hadn't done the solving of those old problems. And I think this goes back into that piece I was speaking about in terms of like getting to a place of cultural perpetuity mm-hmm. is we are all wounded. And the only thing we can do is heal the wounds that we know and trust in the young people coming after us to heal the wounds that they know and to hope that we've we've done a little bit to close whatever wounds they would have had without us. I really like this because it it gives you a really solid purpose and place in time and it allows you to zoom in on what you're doing today but also to zoom out and see the kind of bigger picture and I think that that takes a lot of, oh, I can't even come up with the word because it's not bravery. It's something that's acceptance, maybe, mm. to be able to to toggle between those two perspectives so fluidly. And I think that that's something that, you know, just in the last half hour that you've done multiple times, right? You've zoomed in and out quite naturally without getting too stuck in in one 
place. And I wonder if that helps you not get stuck into one problem. Yes, I think I have to do that if I'm if I'm going to do anything any day. <laughs> yeah. Because for me, you know, like my nine to five is usually stacked with meetings that at the end of the day, I can't be like, oh, I, I moved the needle today, yeah. right? It's not super clear, yeah. like after a day of work, if I've moved the needle. But I do think that after five years, I do see the needle moving. Mm-hmm. And I think the perspective that I've gotten from other communities and the leaders that I've been so blessed to be mentored and work with, whether that's uh, Black Lives Matter or whether that's the folks working on Stop Asian Hate or whether that's the incredible folks at Jewish Voice for Peace or whether that's folks that I personally learned from who I want to call into the space, the late uh, Derek Dawson, who was my organizing mentor for many years in Chicago. And he passed away last year. I miss him a lot. Who was a queer black disabled man and really taught me through the lens of disability justice that the perspective that I got from my mentors is that this work has to be generational because otherwise the weight is way too heavy for any single person to carry. We have to be so hopeful that we will see the thing in our lifetime, but also recognize that by the time we get to the thing we're achieving, there will be another thing to achieve. So seeing it as a step on the ladder really helps me figure out like, okay, if I have my great, great grandchildren, hopefully running around someday, are they going to be able to be at the top of the ladder? And that is enough for me, honestly, knowing that we are progressing in that way. And that's, that has to be my perspective, Mm. or I think I would lose my mind. Yeah. So there's a book. I'm looking at my shelf to see if I can see who wrote it. I can't. Nope. It's too far away. There's a book called Trauma Stewardship, and it's basically a book on preventing burnout in people who are doing any type of healing work. I think it's pretty applicable to most people, to be honest. But yes, I need to read this. It's very good. I'll send it to you. And one of the their sort of techniques is zooming out and realizing you cannot solve the world's problems. And not only that, the world's problems are not yours to solve. Mm. You didn't create the problem. And even though you see a solution, it's not your, as one person, your job to fix it. And the book talks a lot about how it's easy to to lose that perspective. Very. And I can imagine for you, especially right now with, you know, the, the war that's going on, it would be really easy to lose that perspective when, you know, it kind of feels like, oh, we've just, we've been fighting for this whole thing and now, oh, we've got to start this all over again in some ways. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you naming that. And and to be totally honest, I have lost that perspective many mm-hmm. times in the last six yeah. weeks. It's been really hard not to. It's so overwhelming. And I think that the resounding feeling and fear across a lot of the cultural workers in this space is that it felt like we lost 20 years of progress overnight in the way that we were seeing the description of Muslim people or people perceived to be Muslim mm-hmm. across media throughout this war and the dehumanization yeah. that's happening on both mm-hmm. sides, but the remarkable dehumanization that's happening to the Palestinian people, Muslim people, Arab people across the world has been really, uh, has made me feel naive mm. because it's like, oh, I really thought, and that was a moment where 
I, I questioned myself and if I had accomplished anything, right? Because mm-hmm. I've been organizing around this type of work for, you know, since 2001. And to know it could just, it was so fragile, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was so fragile and it felt like it poofed away was a really, really hard pill to swallow. And I am now feeling more hopeful than ever, actually, as, as much pain as I'm in, as much ex- deep, deep exhaustion. Like I, I feel like I'm being so much less articulate than I usually am because I, I think we're all just the whole world is exhausted right now. Mm. I think it would be inhuman not to be. Yeah. And I still feel like we are closer than ever to seeing justice and seeing a true freedom for all people that occupy this world. When you talked about feeling naive, I remember thinking that when Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> yeah. And I think for a lot of white people, it was a, oh, shit, we, it really is this bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember that feeling. And I chose in that moment to go, okay. Like the, the um, analogy I used for it was if I'm trying to fix up a house, and I've been trying to do it in the dark, I don't understand the scope of the problem. Mm. And when I turn on the lights, everything looks terrible. But now that the lights are on, I can see all of the work that needs to be done. And from that came hope, because I was able to sort of see, okay, here's the work that needs to be done. And where's my role in this? What can I do? And so it's finding, I think, in these moments of, of deep pain, and, and I agree, the whole world is exhausted and, and everyone is in pain from one thing or another at this point. And everyone's going to have compassion fatigue and news fatigue and just general fatigue. And I think what I'm hearing from you is your own tale of finding that hope. And maybe that's an invitation to anybody listening to this is to find that hope and what your place is in being part of that solution, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I actually think what's giving me hope is other people. Mm. And I imagine many of those people are your listeners. I have been really inspired. I think sometimes when we, we share our pain on like social media or whatever, it feels like you're just kind of like screaming into the void and you're yeah. like, does anybody even care? Is anybody out there? Hello. <laughs> and I've been really moved by how many people from high school that I you know don't even keep up with that much anymore or people that I've only met once or twice and follow me on social media have reached out to say, I didn't know. Mm. Thank you. I didn't know. And what I will say to people is, like nothing makes me more hopeful than people who are just willing to change their minds when they have new information. Yeah. And it is never too late to get new information and change your mind. And I welcome anyone at any time who, you know, wants to be part of this collective quest for liberation, because I do really believe that our liberation is bound up in one another's and we can't be free until all of us are free. I agree with that. So at any point, <laughs> it's never too late and it's never an embarrassing time to do it. And I know sometimes the shame of like, I should have been there sooner can really hold us back, but there's no time like the present. And whenever it feels right is the right time. So I would just encourage people, like, don't let that hold you back and just 
it can be really inspiring for people. Like I, one of the things I love most about my parents is that they change their minds. Mm-hmm. Like they've grown, they've grown since, since they had me, they've changed their minds about many social issues. And I'm super proud of that. I love that. My family is like that as well. And, and it's always reassuring. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I've I've said to quite a few people, I look forward to the day where my perspectives and my opinions are old, because it means we've progressed and it means I get to update, right? And I love getting new information and going, oh shit, well, time for a new opinion on that, I guess. And it's hard, but it's okay. And yeah, I agree with you that like there's no time like the present to. Just kind of open up to that. Arija, I want to be really respectful of your time and your energy right now. Could you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find all the incredible, how they can follow along to get all the updates on the work that you mentioned as well? Absolutely. So you can find Pillars Fund at at Pillars Fund on Instagram. I think we're at pillars underscore fund on Twitter, but I deleted my personal Twitter because <laughs> I have Elon <laughs> issues. So I'm not, I'm not as clued into that anymore. You can find my personal work, both my organizing and my pillars work on Instagram as well. That's mostly where I'm at. It's at Arij Mikati, A-R-I-J-M-I-K-A-T-I. And also I do have a sub stack where I write about mental health and, you know, the Muslim and Arab perspective on things like death and grief. And it's not, it's not all sad, I promise. (laughs) But I, I like to, (laughs) I like to delve into some of those larger sort of root systems of the culture tree of the things that, that make us who we are and allow us to see the world the way we see it and move through the world the way we move through it. So you can find all that on my Substack as well. You can find the link to my Substack in my Instagram bio. And in the show notes. Great. And in the show yeah. notes. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't even have to worry about that. We'll take wow. care of it for Clutch. you. If there's one small problem I can take off of your hands, it's making sure that the link to your Substack gets put into I the love show it. notes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Arige, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing you and your work and for sharing your energy. I'm I'm extra appreciative of your energy because I know how in limited supply it may be at the moment. So no, it is so my pleasure. And I'm so grateful for the invitation and that this conversation gave me energy and reminded me of why I do what I do and why it's important to keep going. Awesome. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at, at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.